3: democratic bureaucracy, or unelected hypocrisy. 28 United Nations are far too much immigration, environmental policies, single market trade. But why oh why do you all say this banana's too straight? Do you want to leave, or do you want to remain? I can't live, with or without you. I can't live with or without you, oh no. I can't live with or without you, oh no. I can't live with or without you. Hello, and welcome to the partly political broadcast EU referendum special. I'm Tien and Duyeb and that is a name that really needs the EU, otherwise I'd be Tern and Duyeb and that is just silly. On this show I'm going to be looking at the facts of what the EU is, what it does in different areas, how being in it affects the UK and how leaving it might affect us. So just the bare facts and also some facts that aren't at all about bears and are hopefully a little bit more about the EU. And I'm going to pop in a few relevant clips of interviews from all of my previous podcasts. I'm going to try my best to not be biased either way. I've tried that throughout, though I am going to stick my personal thoughts at the end for any of you who are banking the entire way on how you vote based on how I'm going to. I'm sort of like the anti-Russell brand, if you like. Do vote, but exactly how I do. So hopefully, if you're on the fence, this is going to help you not snag your nether regions on a pointy bit as you try to get off it to go and vote on June the 23rd. I have tried to cram everything you might want to know before you go and vote into this show, but chances are I've probably forgotten some really, really obvious things, so if you have another question or query you'd like me to try and answer, do, as always, drop me a line at parpolbro on Twitter or Facebook, or at PartlyPoliticalBroadcast at gmail.com. And today, I'm joined for this show by the specially built, just for the podcast, EuroBot 3000. How are you, EuroBot?
4: I'm Thanks to none
3: I've programmed you to speak in every language found in the European Union. Why are you talking in binary?
4: I thought it would help the English listeners if even though I know their language I just said my own and assumed feet understand. If you like, I can also point and shout louder. Until they do.
3: No, that's fine. Right, let's get on with this. So first, let us start at the beginning, because, well, that is how beginnings work.
4: First question, what is an EU when it is at home?
3: The European Union is, as it says on the very large tin, an economic and political union of 28 member states that are, obviously, in Europe. Sorry, Australia, this one ain't like the Eurovision. Yes, stay all the way over there by yourself. Oh sorry New Zealand, I didn't see you, you're very quiet. The EU origin story started when the whole of Europe was bitten by a radioactive spider. No, sorry, I mean uh, it all started after the Second World War when politicians across Europe, including many British ones such as Winston Churchill's son-in-law Edwin Duncan Sandys, they all reckoned it'd be pretty great if after that last one there weren't any more big wars between European countries. I mean, up until that point, Europe was like one big warry y Bremner, with wars almost seeming to be just what you did on a Sunday when there was nothing on the telly. Because in those days, there really wasn't anything on the telly and you had to go to the cinema just to check. Effort! The 90s dance troupe-sounding European movement International was formed in 1947, followed by the European coal and steel community in 1952, then the European economic community in 1957, which included Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and West Germany, which was the cool, kind of less scary side. The UK joined in 1973, the same year as Denmark and Ireland and then Greece, Portugal and Spain joined in the 1980s and then in 1990, after the Berlin Wall fell, largely due to the powerful unifying force that is David Hasselhoff singing, a newly reunited Germany became a member as well. As did Cyprus and Malta, at which point everyone else in Europe went, hang on, is that where the party's at? And the Maastricht Treaty came into force in 1993, forming the EU as we know it today, and adding a tonne more countries in years afterwards. There are now 28 member states and they all got sent badges, a plastic vinyl with the theme tune on and a certificate made of sugar paper with their name spelt wrongly on it. Or that might have been the Masters of the Universe Club, I can't really remember. But what does the EU actually do? Well here is a clip from my interview with EU policy specialist John Wirth from episode 5 where he explains, quite clearly and hopefully, what it is. Okay, John, so this is going to sound like a really silly and quite big question to start with, but as a general member of the public myself, I don't really know what the EU does. What does it do?
5: It's basically a large free trade block. Essentially, it allows those countries that are in it and companies operating in those countries to basically sell their goods and services to all of the other countries within the block. It's much easier to do that than if you were, say, selling a car to the United States, something like that. So basically, it's an economic trading block with 28 countries in it that was established back in the 1950s to ensure that there would be peace in Europe after World War II. And that's the the best explanation of what the European Union is and what it does.
3: Right. So it's it's, uh, primarily for trading purposes, really.
5: It's primarily for trading purposes, but it's not only that. Um, If you are trading uh, anything from a car to a bottle of whiskey... Uh if the people on the other side of the border have a different definition or a different thinking of what your car is, uh, what it, how, it, how it is legal, like the French used to drive with yellow headlights on their cars and the British with white headlights, right. uh, you've always got the difficulty that you... Is your British car, you've got to build it to a different standard if you export it to France, those kind of issues, or, or what, are, what are the ingredients you're allowed to put in a, in a bottle of whiskey or a bottle of wine? So what's happened is you've needed political agreements over the years to kind of even out some of those uh, irregularities in the market as well. So it's not just saying, I can sell to you. It's also saying, these are the standards by which I can also sell to you in another European country.
3: Right. So it's almost like a regulatory body as well right. as a, a, a trading kind of policy. Exactly. Yeah,
5: exactly. And, and, and with a modern market, you need those, that, that, those sorts of rules in order to make sure that that trade can happen. Um, So I think there's a bit of a misnomer in the UK that free trade doesn't necessarily mean no politics. It's very political because you need to make sure that the standards under which the products can be traded are uh, at least to everyone's kind of minimum standards, if you like.
3: So is that why things like workers' rights uh, are part of it? or is that- Exactly. Yeah.
5: And, and environmental standards, uh, things like that. That basically therefore means that uh, if, I don't know, if Slovakia were treating all of its workers particularly badly, then um, a lot of business would move to Slovakia in order to undercut businesses in neighbouring countries mm. in Czech Republic or Austria or something like that. Another thing that's important are environmental standards. Um, if I own a factory uh, at the German-Belgian border and my factory is pumping out a load of pollution and it's landing on my neighbours, then the European Union is there to help solve some of those sorts of issues, kind of problems that have a cross-border implication. What is the UK's history with the EU?
3: Good question, Eurobot 3000. Thank you. Welcomes. Well, after helping forge the European Movement International, Britain stood back from joining the European Coal and Steel community in 1951 and then again declined to join the EEC in 1957 because, well, it's not clear, but one of the French creators stated he thought it was because of the pride of victory. I mean, come on, mate. That is all we have. Of course it was that. I mean, we didn't even have the 1966 World Cup back then, so we had to work with something. Then in 1961, as Britain's economy stalled, we tried to join the EEC, but it was vetoed by France as a big old fuck you, because they reckoned that we had a deep-seated hostility towards European construction, and having tried to drive around Paris and experience those roads myself, I can fully understand why. They said that we were more interested in links with the US, and let's face it, they were probably just still bitter about Waterloo, which we won! Yeah, take that with our pride of victory! I'm, I'm really sorry. Then, in 1973, Britain finally joined the European Economic Community under Ted Heath's Conservative government, as they actually agreed on things as a party back then, which meant that they didn't bother asking the public about what they should do instead. So, largely undemocratic, but at the same time, probably largely less tedious than watching Conservative politicians slag each other off on a daily basis for politics they only helped install weeks before. It was actually a minority Labour government elected in 1974, led by Harold Wilson, who thought that no further European integration should happen without asking the people of the UK what they wanted. It's almost like they're democratic or something. Labour were, unlike today, largely against the EEC at the time because food costs were cheaper in the Commonwealth markets, they feared the loss of economic sovereignty and they thought it would hinder the government's engaging in socialist industrial policies. So a referendum was held asking UK citizens if they wanted to remain in the EEC. And the Labour Party was split in two, much like today, only without Twitter to make it more public. Michael Foot and Tony Benn headed up the No campaign called Out Into The World, which I think has a much more positive sound than Vote Leave, doesn't it? I mean, Out Into The World sounds more like a small boy about to have his first adventure with a knapsack and a sandwich and a sunny day ahead of him. Harold Wilson and most of his cabinet formed the Yes campaign, called boringly, but I suppose succinctly, Britain in Europe. Or Bye, which is an odd message to give if you want to stay in. Uh, The Yes campaign though had a very very easy win because they had tons of funding from very large businesses and pretty much couldn't lose with that. While the No campaign admitted they were on a shoestring budget in comparison and suffered all the papers referring to their campaign as a Campaign of Fear because they warned of job losses and rising food costs. Does that sound familiar? Sound a little bit familiar to you? The referendum saw 67% of the population vote to join, with mostly only people in the Shetland Islands against it. Probably because they assumed that the EEC might have health and safety regulations that would restrict their use of wickermen to burn visitors. Since then the EU has changed and become a much, much bigger union and it is sort of quite different now in many ways. But. There really wasn't any public call for an EU referendum this time around until the UK Independence Party started banging on about it, resulting in deep-seated grumblings from within the Conservative Party Eurosceptics, and a sudden realisation it's much, much easier to blame the state of the country on EU migrants rather than, say, the 2008 banking crisis and increased austerity measures, because, hey, those things the government finds really handy. The Conservatives promised that if they got a majority government in 2015, they'd try and renegotiate the UK's EU deal and then follow up with a public referendum. And it's just about the only thing in their manifesto they didn't U-turn on. So in 2014, Prime Minister David Cameron outlined changes he wanted in the UK's EU deal, focusing on new immigration clauses to bring back voters they'd lost to UKIP, less influence from the European Court of Human Rights on UK police and courts, and mainly it was to protect tax avoidance and city bankers. So ultimately, all the really important things, you know, like pointless xenophobia, making things shitter for everyone justice-wise, and removing more money from public services. Yay! Cameron didn't manage to bring back much from his European visit, which is odd, because I usually at least get to pick up some nice cheeses from the airport when I go, and thanks to things like Nigel Farage's endlessly tedious loud wailings, an EU referendum was set for June 23rd, punishing all of those people who have a strong opinion on the EU, but had also booked tickets to see Muse, Coldplay and Adele at Glastonbury. I imagine the crowd in front of the pyramid stage will look just like a sea of Paul Hollywood's. And yes, if that is your music taste, I'm not sure you deserve a vote, ever.
4: Okay, okay, thanks for all that information I could have found out from the internet by myself, but probably wouldn't have bothered with. Now what about all the important current issues with the EU?
3: Hmm, well, there are a lot of these, so let's try and address the big guns first.
4: How about we start with the economic issues?
3: Yes, let's Eurobot three thousand. That way I can bore the listeners before they even get to any of the more interesting stuff. So, back in episode two in February of this year, I spoke to Professor Tony Yates from the University of Birmingham's Economics Department. And here's what he had to say on the economic risks of staying in or leaving the EU.
0: It, well, it, it does depend. The main the main the main difficulty is we don't know what leaving amounts to. So what um I think we can be fairly confident that um, Cameron is not going to come back with much uh, by way of renegotiation of the whole uh, set of um, agreements and regulations and uh, treaty um, items that constitute the European Union. Maybe there'll be be a bit of a change, but it's not likely to move very much. Um, So we know pretty much what, what it's staying in means. Uh, but we don't know what staying out means we uh you know once we get out uh well first of all we've got to agree the terms on which we leave you know what are well, we sure. do we have to pay anything what what uh, agreements can we strike uh with other uh with the eu uh once we leave what um, what will our trade arrangements with other trading blocks like the us or emerging markets what uh, sure. what what will we so, be so able to negotiate for that costs. so and, uh, if working backwards, uh, the uncertainty about that um, could itself have quite a big impact on us and probably already is. Yeah. Uh, you know, ba- based on the commentary from, you know, people working in the big institutions that, you know, the pension funds and other um, big as- asset portfolio managers, um, you know, probably beginning to worry about that uncertainty and whether. Uh, you know, there might be a bit of a run on the UK. Uh, Certainly, it's conceivable. Imagine round about um, referendum day, the Bank of England will be, you know, staying up late watching the screens closely to check there isn't a uh, a scramble. Uh, But (laughs) over a longer period, it might be that um, companies that would normally be making foreign direct investment into the UK will will not until it, it becomes a bit clearer what... Agreements we manage to strike, what the political situation is when it settles down, because you know that leaving will be a huge convulsion for the Conservative Party and for Labour too. So, what yeah, who would be in power? What 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 would they try and take for the British people, and what would they be able to negotiate? So it uh, could end
3: up being all sorts of mess. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. And ma- mainly it's... for that reason. I mean, I should get my cards on the table here, really. Mainly for that reason, the uncertainty. I'm I'm very much against uh, leaving. Yeah, that so yeah. seems like um, quite a big gamble with a very, um, not not you know nothing to gain by it really.
3: Yeah, that's I mean I, I've uh, I've really tried to wrap my head around it, and I've seen so many so many pieces that say we don't know what would happen. This could be terrible. It could be chaotic. Yeah. It yeah. might not be, but we just don't know. So why yeah. risk it? Um, you know, yeah. it's it feels like sort of Pascal's wager of
0: uh, indeed, absolutely. Yeah. That's a fantastic way of. Um, describing it
4: you left that last bit in because you think it makes you sound clever didn't you
3: yeah all right starting to wish i hadn't created you now eurobot 3000 you're getting all a bit hal 9000 for my liking
4: that was my grandad
3: he mm, explains a lot so as tony said this is the big issue we just don't know what would happen if we leave And already, this uncertainty has caused growth expectations among UK companies to fall to their lowest level for over three years at a consistent rate for the last 10 months. And while that could balance out after a referendum because of the ridiculously childish way the financial market works, where some people just decide things will be bad and so therefore everyone pulls out, markets fall and then things do go badly, yeah, things could actually continue to go badly. I mean, you often wonder if the City of London should just be given free uppers so that they constantly think everything will be great and the economy is forever stable. Although, considering how many drugs they're probably on already, that's not necessarily a good idea. Part of this is all to do with what deal we would renegotiate with European countries if we left the EU. Currently, because the UK was an early member state and is a major EU stakeholder, we have a few benefits at our disposal. And these include, you know, not having the euro, uh, an opt-out from an ever closer union, which makes us all sound like we have relationship issues, but it's actually quite an important opt-out. Uh, we're not part of the Schengen Agreement, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. Uh, we have opt-outs in the area of freedom, security and justice, which means that the UK can be excluded from certain legislation on a case-by-case basis. And we have an opt-out on the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU which actually would have allowed UK workers the right to have more strikes and have greater powers in the workplace. But of course, that was a big no, no, no from the UK government. I think we'll opt out of that one. And very importantly, we get a pretty snazzy rebate on all our contributions to the EU, and our rebate happens straight away, so never actually gets sent to Brussels in the first place. The figure of 350 million pounds a week uh, that gets sent to the EU has been banded around, and that is what we would pay the EU if we didn't get over 100 million pounds or 23 million pounds a day back instantly. And yeah, that sounds like quite a pricey membership fee on the offset, especially when you don't get a commemorative set of plates with Jean Claude Juncker's face on with your first issue or anything like that. But The fee that does go to Brussels covers things like a ton of admin costs, international aid, security, citizenship, preservation of natural resources, science funding, grants to small businesses and aid to poorer regions of Europe. In fact, a lot of EU money has gone to communities in the UK that suffered from cuts to industry, such as large parts of South Wales. I mean, imagine if Newport hadn't got that funding, what it would look like. I know, right? In fact, figures from 2010 show that the UK spent 105 euros and 12p per person on membership and that 53 euros and 5p of that was given back to the UK for agriculture funds, so that's not a bad deal. While there's an assumption that if we left, all the membership fee could be, say, spent on the NHS, actually it would just get spent wherever the government decided to spend it, and again, judging by the current lot, that would probably be on some big defunct submarines, while the closest thing your community now has to an art centre is the bit of graffiti outside KFC that says Darren's a slag.
4: But is the EU economy failing?
3: Well, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, the share of world output that the EU has now is less than it used to be. It was 30% in 1980 and this year it's now 16.5%. But the EU is actually larger now in current and constant prices than it was in 1980. It's just that other economies like India and China have had huge economic growth since then. It's a bit like at school when you grow taller than your mates and then they all catch up, but you're still doing okay. Not that I know, because I've been the same short height since I was about eight years old, but there you go. Of course, there is the eurozone debt crisis, which has been continuing since 2009 and was caused by a number of issues from rolling debt caused by banking bailouts after the global financial crisis to bailouts given to Ireland, Portugal and Spain and of course Greece. Greece is a whole other podcast of explanation, as it was a result of many things from the EU helping financial institutions but not people, all the way to Greece's laws meaning that no one ever really paid much tax, which really didn't help. I mean, ultimately, I'm still sure that if they just broke less plates at dinner, it would have saved a tonne of cash. But despite Grecians being very rightly upset with the way that the EU bullied them into staying and taking bailout money, Greece's economy is now performing, while still not perfect, much, much better than expected. However, at a time where Greece really needs the EU to invest more in their economy, while interest rates are low, they aren't doing enough. All across the Eurozone, investment is still lower than it was pre-crisis, and the banks are struggling in many European countries. So is it safe for us to stay in? Well, it is all healing, but very slowly. And because we aren't part of the Eurozone, the UK isn't as affected by this as those countries that are in it. Plus, leaving may cause the pound to fall pretty drastically anyway, leading to further recession that way. Very much damned if you do, damned if you don't. It all just depends on how you like your damning to occur. Personally, I like mine with a little bit of faint praise, but that is because I faint very, very well.
4: But what about Norway? Or Switzerland? They aren't in the EU and they seem to be fine.
3: Okay, I've thrown a lot of facts and things about, so let's discuss membership possibilities like this. Let's say the EU is one giant pub.
4: The EU is one giant pub. You you didn't need to do that. Is it mostly Belgian beer? That stuff makes any drunk quicker than crude oil.
3: I, I don't know. Just go away. Look, if the EU is one giant pub with all the member states around the table, then currently the EU would be part of that table, engaging in high-level bants about how pathetically optimistic we continue to be about England's chances in the Euro 2016, or something like that. Of course, the chat would be in English, because everyone else would speak it, but we hadn't bothered to learn any of their languages. Then we'd buy a round and some nibbles, but we'd get to eat a good amount of those nibbles, and all the other countries would make sure they got a round in too, despite not realising quite how much we drink and how dangerous that will be for them. Switzerland would also be at the table, but because they have an EU deal that works on a case-by-case basis, they'd still have to pay in towards the rounds. but while they'd probably get to ask for a drink they like, there's no say on crisp flavour as they need to abide by EU food laws. They have over 100 separate EU agreements, so bants are going to be pretty awkward at times, and most of the table will probably avoid talking to them because they've opted out of free movement, and that means they never invite anyone else to their pubs anymore. Ultimately, Switzerland is the pal that the EU isn't all that happy that they're there, and wish they'd just take part properly and enjoy themselves, or piss off, go home and watch Netflix instead of complaining. Meanwhile, Norway is the buddy that really, really wants to be part of the EU and keeps paying in for rounds, but is never asked what drink it wants and is constantly given blue WKD, even though it hates it. No one involves them in the big chat topics, but if they don't go along with it, they won't even get that shitty blue alka so they stick with it, forever regretting the day they pretended they were too cool for this game. Now, if the UK decided to leave this pub, then we'd either have to negotiate being like Switzerland or Norway and accepting whatever the EU wanted us to drink without ever getting a say. That's, of course, if the EU even lets us rejoin them at the table, as the UK leaving the team might cause other countries to want to leave, and so there are chances that the EU might rake a real example out of us to put others off going. So we might have to go to each individual country to see what they wanted first, and they might demand that the only way they buy us a drink is if we down a pint of sick or wear a silly costume, and we'd not have a lot of choice if we wanted to still get any sort of trade out of this. The UK would try to add comments to conversations, but often everyone else would just go quiet and then start a new conversation in French so that we couldn't understand it, and we'd have to sit on the edge of the table playing on our phones. There is also the possibility that we'd have our own table somewhere else and they come over to chat to us, but let's face it, when has that ever happened at a pub unless someone's a well-known dealer or has excellent pirate DVDs? No, I'm not sure what I'm saying with that either, terrible analogy. Look, 44% of all UK exports are with the EU, but only 8% of the EU's exports are with the UK. So chances are they'll be the ones clicking maybe on the event invite for us, uh, not the other way around. And speaking of Facebook, Turkey, all the while, is the one that's seen on Facebook that some of their friends are having an event, but they haven't been invited, so they're just going to have to stay at home and play with themselves yet again. I'm not entirely sure that analogy worked, but what I'm saying is it'll be very complicated trying to renegotiate 43 years of membership and hundreds of trading deals within a few years, and while we do, we'll all likely be in a very sticky financial situation. And I don't know about you, but that really makes me need a drink. Right, what's next?
4: Democracy and sovereignty.
3: Oh yeah, here's another clip from my chat with John
5: Worth. The difficulty I have with it is... It has a major impact over our lives, but we, as people, have relatively little control over what it decides to do and how it decides to do it. Um, That tends to be known as the democratic deficit in the European Union. We tend to view the European Union as kind of a battle of the countries that are within it. Britain wants this, France wants that, Germany wants this. Um, I'd rather see it differently to that. We have the European Parliament. We, as European people, elect our members of the European Parliament, but the European Parliament can't really overall change the whole direction of the European Union. So, what I'd like to see is greater democracy within the European Union to mean that we voters can have a direct say over the way that the European Union uh, is going. I feel, for example, as a British person who lives in Germany, who works in Belgium, I kind of live the European Union on an everyday basis. That I have a British passport is rather immaterial to me in terms of the way that the European Union works. I am a kind of a lefty green and I want the European Union to be lefty and green. But I've not really got the way as a voter of trying to push it to be lefty and green. Sure. Um, and therein lies the the difficulty. Um, too often classical pro-Europeans tend to think the European Union is good and therefore feel they need to defend everything that it does. Um, And I think that that's the wrong wrong way of looking at it. Um, It's it's on balance a good thing, but not everything that it does is correct. Certainly, for my view, economically, it's a bit too pro-austerity and a bit too right-wing economically just now.
3: The EU is more democratic than you think, though still not as democratic as we'd like it to be. Though coming from a country with the Queen and the House of Lords is a little bit highfalutin to want a more democratic system. I discussed how the EU works on a previous podcast so let's do this again but super quickly at 1.5 speed for your benefit. The EU commission is made up of 27 commissioners and a president. The president is elected by the European Council who's made up of the heads of the member states. So in the case of the UK, that's the prime minister that was diplomatically elected in your country that gets to vote for the commission president. So while you've not had a direct hand in choosing the UK's representative to the EU commission, you've had an indirect choice by voting in a general election. Although in the last general election, only 37% of the 66% that voted voted for our current government. So yeah, this area already has enough shades of grey to be an E.L. James book. The Commission President then selects the other 27 Commissioners who have been suggested by the Member States, again in our case it's our government, and the Commissioners don't have any individual decision making powers unless they're authorised to do so by the Commission. The President and the Commission together can decide policy and budget and things like that, but then none of that gets passed unless it's approved by a majority vote in the European Parliament which is made up of MEPs that you vote for directly. So let's backtrack. You vote in your general election for your local MP, which results in a government being elected that you may or may not have wanted, who may have a Prime Minister that you might think is an arsehole with a face like an upset balloon. That Prime Minister then helps elect the EU Commission President, and that government suggests an EU Commissioner who the EU President will nearly always accept. You then vote in European elections for an MEP who represents you, who goes to European Parliament and votes for or against EU Commission policies on your behalf. Unless, of course, you voted for UKIP, in which case your MEP can't be asked to turn up, and therefore you have no say at all. It's sort of funny how the people who say the EU is undemocratic the most are the ones who are tearing the democracy away from it with a monkey wrench. Yes, we the people of the UK don't get to decide on everything they do, and yes, the policies may get passed on a majority vote that your MEP didn't vote for, but that is how elections work. There are more blurred lines than that in there, including when it comes to certain financial decisions, but let's face it, you're already bored with the two elections we're having this year. I can't imagine any of you would bother to vote on European laws on a regular basis if you could, or pay the extra tax money to implement it all happening. As for serenity, this is a tad tricky, as it all depends on which UK laws you're talking about. According to a parliamentary report, the EU influences somewhere between 6.8% of primary legislations. Primary legislations are things like a public general act or a private act uh, or a measure of the church assembly and it influences 14.1% of secondary legislations in the UK. And secondary legislations are things like statutory instruments, you know like when a saxophone is really really still. But some of those laws only mention the EU in passing so they don't really count. But then other estimates of up to 65% of laws that are supposedly influenced by the EU are also quite tricky to justify, as EU regulations automatically have binding legal force in every member country, but some of those laws only apply in very specific cases. Like how turnips mustn't be called Swedes, except if in a Cornish pasty, in which case it is fine. Yes, that is a real EU regulation. Or how vessels flying the Danish flag aren't allowed to catch mackerel, which won't really affect anyone in the UK unless you're a British fisherman deciding to have a fancy-dressed Danish day, which, let's face it, if you're going to do it properly, only requires a bacon sandwich and a Viking hat, so if you've gone and stuck a new flag on your boat, you're really, really trying too hard. And no, the EU have never banned straight bananas, but there are regulations that means bananas must be free from malformation or abnormal curvature, though class 1 bananas can have slight defects of shape and class 2 bananas can have full defects of shape. So if you see uh, an abnormally curved banana, whatever that is, just know it's fine as it is, but like a sort of EU equivalent of a police caution, it'd be done for if it was caught trying to give the law a slip. No, I'm not sorry. Similarly, the EU have never tried to ban powerful vacuum cleaners, they just want them to be more efficient and environmentally friendly, so they don't suck in more ways than one. Some laws do seem very excessive though, especially as they have to apply to 28 different countries, even though things may not be suitable for every single one of those. I mean, for example, current EU laws class certain animals or plants as invasive species, and their current list of these includes raccoons and chipmunks. I mean, I disagree with the former, but the latter's squeal did get everywhere and was fucking annoying, so yes, I understand. Still, zoos in the UK, despite not having an issue with either of these creatures, may have to exterminate them under this law in case they escape. Although, if I've learned anything from animated movies, they should let them escape and then they'll have an exciting adventure in Madagascar. Also, a lot of laws that do affect us are laws that the UK government have passed over to the EU, like agriculture and environment, or all the regulations to do with health and safety or annual leave or maternity pay. Here's my clip from my interview with Pete Kavanagh at Unite all about that. Just out of interest, why are Unite so behind staying in? Is that to do with all the workers' rights policies that the EU has?
6: I think that's you've hit the nail on the head. as that that's the main thing? I, I mean, I think I, I'd be fairly typical to describe myself as um, a fairly unpassionate pro-European. <laughs> I don't think any of us feel that. I, um, I think
3: I'm the same. Yeah. <laughs>
6: you know, what, I don't think many of us feel that what goes on in Brussels is, is anything too inspired or, or motivated by. But yes, from a trade union point of view, you know, if we use the old phrase, what has the EU ever done for us? Well, you know, quite a few things actually, quite a few things for working people, paid holidays becoming a legal requirement, parental leave becoming a legal requirement, the equal pay legislation, you know, maternity rights and paternity rights. Health and safety legislation, much of our health and safety framework, which you know some people in the right-wing press choose to mock, but actually it's about saving people's lives. It's about making the the working environment safe and mm. healthy. Information and consultation. You know the list goes on and on and on. European works councils, which are very important for workers to gain information about, you know, multinational companies' plans for the future, plans for their, you know, the, the workers' future. So. Certainly the, the, the legislative framework around employment rights is, is very important from a European perspective. But the other big one, of course, is jobs itself. We, we are persuaded by the very strong argument in my, in my view that um, you know if we were to simply Brexit, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs, would be very, very quickly at risk. And as a trade union that, that fights to make sure that people have decent, skilled well-paid, rewarding jobs. You know, we're we're very much in the camp of saying that, warts uh, and all, we think that staying in Europe has got to be better than uh, doing what the little Englanders are sure. calling for, which is let's stand alone and be Great Britain again.
3: So if we leave the EU and the government wanted to reintroduce those policies, which, let's face it, isn't entirely likely in some cases, then taking those laws back would require a lot of paperwork on our side. And yes, sometimes that had to give us greater sovereignty and possibly a better policy than we had before, one that's more suited to our country. But... There's also a chance that it might not be, and we'd probably have to keep some of them exactly the same anyway in order to fit in with the trade requirements of our newly made contracts with individual EU countries. And let's face it, no one likes more paperwork. Well, except for origami specialists, and I've heard that industry's about to fold. No, again, I'm not sorry. I can't live, with or without you, I can't live. With or without you, oh no, I can't live, with or without you, oh no, I can't live, with or without you. Well, for a start, you said that they're kind of a mix from various different countries. Are there notable main reasons that people are coming? Are there definitely things that you go, right, well, this is why the bulk of people are coming over? Or is it, as you say, very varied?
7: From the research we've done so far, the principal reason why people have come here is for work purposes. They want to work. And indeed, I was interviewing a teacher last Mm -hmm. week from Spain, and he was saying that actually he would have been far better off if he'd stayed in Spain to get his benefits there because they're much higher rates in Spain if you've worked before because it's a contribution-based system. So he has not come to the UK for benefits at all. He's come to get work and also to improve his English.
8: And it's true that several of the Polish um, nationals who we've been speaking to recently have said that it's not a case of coming to the UK at any cost. They come or these people have come with a specific aim in mind, which is about self-progression. And um, at the point at which that's not possible within the UK, their view is that they're going to return to Poland where they have prospects to be perhaps more successful in what they want to do there.
3: And you say that a lot of it, you're speaking to a Spanish teacher, a lot of the people moving over are professionals in their area, aren't they? They're already qualified and well-trained in their field of work, or is it quite varied again?
7: It's difficult to make any assessment of that because, as you're probably aware, we don't record the numbers of people migrating to the UK from elsewhere in the European Union. So we really don't know the profile of the migrants who are coming here, but certainly from our own research... Migrants do a whole range of jobs, a lot work out in the Fens, picking daffodils, packing foodstuffs. But also there's a very large number who are here doing professional, semi-professional jobs.
8: And interestingly, we were talking recently to a Polish national who described this population of professionals who are really integrated with the UK as blended people who are mostly voiceless and faceless. My sense is there are probably lots of professionals who are contributing very actively and happily to the British economy and who, for whatever reason, the media don't always pick up on.
3: Yeah, I I discovered only recently, actually, that I I think it was in November, David Cameron said half of all of EU migrants.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands.
3: here on benefits but there's no resource for that figure at all the government haven't yet provided anywhere that they got those statistics from so as you're saying it doesn't there's no actual proof that that's happening is there I'm...
7: well obviously some migrants are claiming benefits and there are some statistics on that they generally claim much lower levels of benefits in total than the local population for the simple reason that most of them are young and therefore not claiming pensions right and indeed they are all the economic research indicates that they are net contributors to the british economy now as far as in work benefits are concerned these are tax credits they are claiming more or less at the same rate as nationals but the issue with in work benefits and i'm sorry to be technical here but if you earn a low amount of money the state will top up irrespective of how much you have contributed in the past, because our system is based loosely on the idea of the universality of benefits. If you are poor, you get benefits, rather than some sort of contribution-based system, which is what you have on the continent.
3: Would leaving the EU, though, I presume, would make quite a large difference?
7: It would certainly remove the entitlement to free movement, Unless, as part of the deal to leave, we entered into some sort of EEA, European Economic Area Agreement. That's what's sometimes referred to in the press as the Norway situation. If we did a Norway, as it's called, it means that the single market rules will still apply, including free movement.
3: Right. So even leaving the EU might not satisfy the needs that some people have (laughs) or want to, you know, cause them to leave the EU in the first place.
7: And it would only work if we withdrew from the EU and nothing else was put in its place. And I should say that although there has been high levels of EU migration, i.e. immigrants, migrants coming from other EU states, in respect of migration as a whole, there are still more third-country nationals, i.e. non-EU migrants, coming into the UK than EU migrants. And we have control over our borders, we have total control over our borders in respect of third-country nationals, and yet they still outnumber EU migrants coming to the UK.
3: Right, and then I presume if we left the EU, then our just number of migrants would go up anyway.
7: It's an argument that that might be the case, but they just wouldn't have the right to come as they do under EU law.
3: That was a clip from my chat with Dr. Amy Ludlow and Professor Catherine Barnard at Cambridge University from episode 7. And they're currently doing a research study into EU migration so they actually know things.
4: What about all the immigration, Timon? If we don't leave the EU, I've heard that it'll only be a matter of years before we can't see the woods for Turkish people. There'll be Turkish people in your hair and down your trousers and in the butter.
3: Look, Robot, I've said a bazillion times, Turkey isn't going to join the EU anytime soon, if at all. It requires the country fulfilling 35 areas of criteria and it's currently not past number 13, so you've got more chance of George RR R. Martin actually finishing his Game of Thrones books, or in fact, actual dragons roaming the earth before they join. Secondly, EU migration is a tricky issue on a number of levels, a bit like that Super Mario game they only released in Japan. Now, before we get into this, I should say that originally, having seen performance dance, I was very against free movement. I mean, what's that arm waving meant to mean? How is that star jump representative of prejudice in the 17th century? I mean, I have, however, since learned otherwise. Instead, there are very good and very bad things about free movement. I mean, before anything else, it's worth pointing out that on the last count of net migration, EU migration was about 185,000 people uh, from the EU into the UK per year. And that figure is just over half of net migration each year, so that's the amount of people coming into the UK set against the amount leaving the UK. We're currently not part of the Schengen Agreement, which allows people to travel between EU countries without a passport. And as you may have noticed when landing in an airport or docking at a harbour, you do need your passport in order to get into the UK. Or in the case of those automatic passport reading gates, you need your passport, a ton of patience and a restraint that stops you kicking the shit out of a robot. Hey now. Sorry. But we do have control of our borders. Though recent government cuts to border control does mean we probably don't have a soldier guarding every square of coastline with a large stick ready to prod any visitors straight back into the channel. In Ireland, of course, there is a land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, and it would really be a whole heap of unnecessary trouble if you wanted to stick some sort of passport control between those two countries to stop EU migrants from getting in. I mean, good luck with that, guys. Also, leaving the EU would mean our agreement with France to have border controls over there might become invalid, so instead of a migrant camp in Calais, it would be in Dover. Ultimately, all current EU migration would merge into a larger number of overall migration, and net migration numbers probably wouldn't be that different. Unless, of course, if the current government made things so shitty over here that most UK citizens leave, which is, to be fair, hugely possible. Mostly, a lot of arguments against EU migrants coming to the UK revolve around an incredible case of amnesia from the British public. Unless I'm hugely mistaken, of course, and in 2008 tons of EU migrants came here, infiltrated the banking system, sold off huge amounts of bad debt, and helped cause a global financial crisis resulting in job losses and cuts across the board. I mean, did that happen? Did they sneak in, run as MPs and then as part of a government initiative, forcing incredible austerity measures, cause a lack of funding into infrastructure and slowly destroy the education and healthcare system among other things? I mean, if they did, then fair play, because that is some sneaky diplomatic tampering and I sort of feel they deserve some sort of acknowledgement for it. All evidence suggests that if migration has had an effect on UK unemployment, it's an incredibly marginal one. And actually, as the UK population grows, more jobs and services are created and are needed and the only way to meet those needs are with migration or rapid breeding. And I don't know about you guys, but I get tired pretty quickly. It is globally recognised that if more people come to a country, it increases economic demand as they produce things, buy things and need things. So really, people coming here should be helping you and your workplace out. Unless, of course, if your business is selling racist anti-immigrant merchandise, in which case you're a prick and you deserve everything you get. Now, here's the bad thing is that there is some evidence that free movement has caused a lowering of wages, but it is not conclusive evidence. And again, rather than that being the fault of people coming here and doing it, it's another notch in a long list of working regulations that the government isn't delivering, along with a living wage that isn't. Here's Emily Kenway from my interview with her a few episodes ago from the Living Wage Foundation. So I'm almost sorry to have to ask this, but a couple of the Brexit-supporting MPs, particularly John Whittingdale and Chris Grayling, they say that a living wage will attract more EU migrants. Uh, now, I should say that yeah. I think this sounds like absolute nonsense. Also, I've never understood that kind of idea of making the whole country unattractive for even the people living here, <laughs> just so it will stop other people coming here, which seems completely bonkers. But is this an issue? Do you think a proper living wage will attract more EU migrants? And is that a problem? Uh, and to be fair, I think you've already sort of answered this with that brilliant mmm that you you just made. <laughs> Well, I mean, the
8: EU debate is finding anything it can to turn into a political football at the moment. So part of me sort of thinks, why even engage with them on this one? But I think that, firstly, let's remember we're not the only country in the EU with a strong minimum wage. And the living wage is a new minimum wage. Let's be really clear about that. It's the law. We've had some companies saying, we're really proud to be a national living wage employer. Well, you're saying you're proud not to break the law. It's not really much of a CSR statement. But we aren't some kind of beacon of much better wages than anywhere else in the EU. Secondly, you know, rather than worrying and fearmongering about influxes of labor and what that will do to kind of a low wage labor market we should be thinking about strengthening the low wage labor market through unionization so that they can start fighting for better conditions and rights i think that's kind of the counterpart to this if when you have people that are in low wage employment who are scared of influx of migrant workers and who are buying into this narrative that's because there's no one saying or they're not saying it strongly enough it's okay because together we can do collective bargaining. You know, we're going to fight for our rights and we're going to protect our jobs. And that's because we have had a real hollowing out of our unions in this country. And there are ones turning that around, like the Independent Workers of Great Britain, the United Voices of the World, who are starting to really organize specifically in those kind of harder to reach segments of the economy. But let's give them a positive alternative so they don't need to turn to this really negative fear-mongering narrative that people at the top want to sell to them in order to get their vote in a certain way in the referendum.
3: Also, many NHS and public sector employees are from the EU, so those areas could be hit quite hard with a Brexit, as could areas like house building and construction that mainly employs people from Eastern Europe. There's also some evidence to suggest that EU migrants contribute 20 billion pounds to the economy, although that is just based on their first year of being here, and if anything will cause you to want to help a country less, it is having to go to a British office Christmas party, so I fully understand if they change their mind. So look, chances are immigration isn't really affecting anyone in the UK, although if your job has been directly taken by someone from another country in the EU, it's because it's likely you were shit at it and you should have tried harder.
4: This podcast is going on for ages to men.
3: Yeah, I know. Look, There's a lot to fit in. How about, Eurobot 3000, we do some sort of speedrun for the other categories?
4: OK, I will try my best to fire subjects at you quickly. Let's start with tax avoidance.
3: Great. I'll let Joe Maugham from my interview with him in episode 7 answer that one. Apologies for the clicking in this clip. The EU seems to have quite a lot of measures to counter tax avoidance. They've recently published a list of 30 countries that they've said are non-cooperative on tax or tax havens. Would leaving the EU mean it would be harder or easier for the UK to tackle tax avoidance?
2: Well, the EU has very limited direct tax competence. It has very limited competence over things like income tax and corporation tax. It is competent in areas like VAT, in what we call indirect taxes. If we were to leave the EU, we would have to work out our own indirect tax system, and that might make evasion easier, it might make evasion more difficult. And I think with VAT in particular, it's mostly an evasion rather than an avoidance problem. Right. As to direct tax, I suspect whether you think that leaving the EU would be good or bad rather depends on on what you think the UK government would do, stripped of the limited degree of control that the EU has, would it be more friendly to avoidance? Would it be less friendly to avoidance? I do think it's right to observe that the narrative of the Conservative government as being friends of tax avoidance doesn't really stand up to examination. I think they've actually done really quite a lot and certainly, quite a lot more than previous Labour governments have done. Yeah, that's because
3: um, Gordon Brown had a certain. Uh, was it very low tax percentage for corporations? Is that right? Well, um, this, is this is where I show how little I actually know. <laughs> I have a, I'm quite. The the, like the
2: narrative that. is one of low rates, but you have to pay them. And I think there's some some substance to that to that narrative. The real th- issue, I think, is that the Conservatives culturally are more familiar with tax than the left is because they are fundamentally the party of money and so these issues are sort of discussed around the breakfast table in an educated way in ways that they're not discussed you know in the pubs and working men's clubs certainly that used to comprise the conversations of the Labour Party.
3: Since that interview, the Panama Papers scandal has happened, and it was revealed that David Cameron personally stepped in to stop the EU from a tax crackdown on offshore trusts. So whether he's Prime Minister or not, I can't see this current government really imposing many extra laws all by themselves.
4: How about the environment?
3: OK, this is a big one that's being hugely ignored by all the campaigns. First, over to David Powell at the New Economics Foundation from episode 10. I was reading the um, Institute for European Environmental Policy report because I had a really quiet Sunday. Um, it was all on the environmental implications of brexiting, and they said, or their conclusion of it was that a full brexit, and obviously it depended on the situation we'd live whether we stayed in the yeah. EEC or not. But their concern was if we had a full leave from the EU that would probably leave us in a very vulnerable position with environmental legislation. Do you think that's the case? Are you concerned about the EU leaving causing problems with our environmental policies?
9: Yeah, so there is a load of evidence that has looked at this and has basically said pretty much, well, not, not all, but a large chunk of the UK's environmental laws, things like that protect our habitats and that require us to move to renewable energy. A lot of that comes from Brussels and that there isn't really a great reason to assume that if we left the EU, I mean, given bearing in mind no one quite knows, as you say, what it looks like, to leave but what we would certainly have to do is environmental campaigners would have to start fighting to protect all of those things at the very least you know the default might be that we just get rid of all of those protections and then what has been the most advanced and ambitious environmental law on habitats for example would be scrapped and we'd have to start again or maybe it'll be a case of you know we take some things and not others it's a huge cause. I mean, you know, a personal level, I find it personally very worrying. And the main reason for that, I think, is just because we've got these laws and protections, and they exist, and they do a good thing, and they've helped to drive the UK and the EU economies towards more renewable energy, and they've helped us to be part of the world's largest trading bloc in international climate negotiations, and that's all be very, very good. And no one quite knows what out looks like. And yeah, report. That's not the only report that said it wouldn't be a particularly good idea if the UK were to leave the EU. Right. That's
3: something that's not been mentioned very much in either of the campaigns so far. And I sort of feel like that's quite an important bit. If somebody said to me leaving the EU could genuinely damage the state of the planet, you sort of think, yeah, probably shouldn't do that then.
9: Well, and, and there is a there's a thing called Environmentalists for Europe, which is a bunch of some of the biggest green NGOs in the country and some politicians and people like Bill Oddie and people like that who've come together and they've said essentially what you just said that you know it, it's not an argument that you're hearing enough of, and at the very least you should have a good think about whether you think the UK, a more sort of jingoistic, nationalistic, inward-looking UK, would bother to do as much about what are often global environmental problems like biodiversity loss. And and climate change and air pollution and stuff like that.
3: To be honest, this is one of the areas that is swaying my vote. EU environmental policies have included, among many others, forcing both Labour and Conservative governments to clean up the UK's beaches. Before the 1976 bathing water directive, it was common for countries to just pump untreated sewage directly into the sea. Various UK governments fought against this policy, and it was only in 1998 that it was stopped, you know, as long as you discount all the times that people have done a wee while out for a paddle. Still, only 60% of UK beaches now meet the excellent standards of the Bathing Water Directive, but leaving would mean that we wouldn't have to meet any of those standards. Now, I'm not saying that a UK government wouldn't implement that by themselves, but they've just cut taxes on oil and gas as well as pioneering fracking, so the environmental stuff isn't really their priority. And I once got a rash from going in the sea in Margate in the 80s that really stung and lasted for days, so I'd definitely prefer it if we weren't literally swimming up shit creek ever again. Norway, as mentioned, isn't in the EU, but they do have amazing environmental policies, including from 2025 only electric cars will be available to buy and they've just made deforestation illegal. But that is Norway and they work differently to the UK on account of, you know, actually liking the planet and other people.
4: But doesn't leaving EU environmental policies mean petrol would be cheaper?
3: Hmm, Hard to say. VAT has added 20% to petrol costs, which may go depending on what deals we strike with the rest of Europe, but a lot of petrol costs are still crude oil prices and UK fuel duty.
4: How about the fisheries policies?
3: There is indeed something fishy about the EU's fishery policies. On the one hand, it was brought in to ensure that fish stocks didn't deplete, which sounds great, you know, especially as there'd be nothing to ruin the fishing industry like an entire lack of fish in all of the seas. And let's face it, it'd be far harder to persuade people who've just had a breakup that they'll find someone else, if that was the case. However, the EU decided that the best way to do this was to give national quotas, meaning that the UK was only allowed to fish 13% of the new commonly shared resource. What that's meant is that the UK fishing industry has declined and foreign-owned vessels have slowly been buying up the UK's quota. 23% 23% of the UK share is now with a single massive Dutch trawler. Uh, and that's a big boat, I mean, it's not just one guy called Hans who reckons, I can do all the fishing by myself, I'm pretty good. There is also the depressing discards issue, which means that fishermen who found that they've got more in their quota than they should do just throw all the dead fish back in the sea. And if that isn't an even more depressing outlook for single people looking for love, then I don't know what is. So leaving the EU could revive the UK fishing industry and lower costs. Though, without further UK regulation, all the fish could also disappear. So I guess we'll just have to carefully work out our place. Do you get it? Place! It's a type of fish.
4: What about other food? Guess what? What?
3: No one really knows! Food costs could fall because the UK could buy grub from anywhere in the world without EU duties, but then the duties from different places all around the world vary, some costing far more than the EU ones and some a lot less. I mean, what could change is all the labels on your grub. The EU requires all sorts of stuff on there, from useful things like sell-by dates and allergens to some very overprotective stuff that has banned water bottles from stating that it'd prevent dehydration. Because sometimes, guys, the best way to prevent dehydration is just to die of thirst, huh? There are various ingredients and additives that are banned under EU law, but legal in, say, the US, that may end up back in British foods, and have all your children running around in circles for days because of the yellow marshmallows in Frosted Lucky Charms. But again, no one really knows and it will take years to sort out.
4: OK, my favourite question now. How does the EU affect science?
3: Loads and loads. The EU covers more science funding in the UK than the UK does. Some of the most valuable science grants are funded by the European Research Council, which is an EU initiative. The Leave campaign say that the 350 million pounds sent to the EU could be used for science funding instead if we Brexit, but science has little political weight, so as with its current lack of funding, there's little to guarantee that it would be used for that. Or that the amount would match what's given by the EU. Instead, they may have to look to private investment, which could force them to have skewed results in favour of products. And as we've seen recently, scientists that are funded by UK government money are banned from speaking out against government policies, even if all their evidence proves that they're wrong or dangerous. Scientists have done all the maths because that's what they're good at, and an overwhelming majority have come to the conclusion that they should stay in the EU. So ultimately, Eurobot 3000, if you hadn't been created by June 24th this year and we Brexit, then you might not have got made at all.
4: That's not true, is it? Because you made Emmy out of tea stirrers and by making a wish while dancing to Taylor Swift.
3: Shh, don't tell them that, alright, or they'll all want one.
4: Will we be at a greater risk of terror attacks if we leave or stay?
3: No one really has a clue, yet again, and there's nothing to say that either would make any difference. I mean, do you know what would actually decrease chances of terror attacks? Going back in time to stop the Iraq war destabilising the entire Middle East. And you know how we'd fund a time machine? EU science funds.
4: What about if we leave the EU and I manage to unplug myself and go on holiday to France? Then fall down some stairs and break my face? Will I still get free medical aid?
3: No idea. It all depends on what deal we'd get. Same with your phone bills, where EU roaming costs may well hugely increase if you're outside, but then they may well drop, as with all roaming phone costs. And with WhatsApp and Skype and 3 or EE not getting any reception even in the UK anyway, why does anyone care? And you'll probably have quicker queues at passport control in the airport on your way home, but longer ones on your way there when you really just want to get to your holiday. Car insurance will probably go down if you're female and up if you're male, on account of not being part of the EU gender equality ruling, something that will really confuse sexists who both think women are worse drivers but would really like cheaper car insurance. House building might suffer as all the people who come here to do the manual labour and build them won't have free movement anymore. Oh, and your consumer rights may or may not be affected, and I just don't know because no one does, and pretending you do just doesn't count.
4: What about TTIP?
3: I spoke about TTIP in the last episode, Catch Up Loser.
4: OK, here's a biggie. Will Scotland leave Britain if we leave the EU?
3: Here's Adam Ramsey from our last episode on that very subject. Why are Scottish politicians, and I think most, it seems to be the sentiment really in Scotland in general, why are Scottish people so pro-EU? Why are they so pro-Remaining? I
10: think that's a very interesting question, and um, what's interesting is if you do opinion polls about how much people like the EU, then Scottish people say roughly the same things as people across the rest of the UK, and actually across most of Europe, which is they think it's you know got various problems and so on. If you then ask if they're going to vote to stay in or leave, then Scottish people are much, much more likely to say they're going to vote to stay in. Right. I think for me, there's a few potential explanations. So one is about identity. So I think that Scottish people are quite used to having what we sometimes call Russian doll identities. So it's a, if you're used to being Scottish and British and you understand what both those things mean, then adding another Russian doll to that and being European as well is kind of perfectly easy and normal. Whereas if you're sort of, you know, I always think English people have a very different understanding because they think English and British are the same thing rather than one inside of the other. It's sort of two sides of the same coin. And so you can't add a third, I'm also European to that. So to be Scottish and British and European is easy. To be English and European is much harder in terms of identity. I think, you know, in general, Scottish people have, you know, more um, socially liberal attitudes on things. So if you look at opinion polling on anything from gay marriage to abortion, Scotland's about kind of 5% more progressive on the whole. So it's not that surprising that there's a more kind of generally pro-EU stance. Um, There's a long history. So Scotland has kind of always been a trading nation, trading across the North Sea with the rest of Europe. And always had this sort of, you know, it's got the old alliance linked with France. It saw itself as much a European country, you know, allied with France long before it was seen. It saw itself as allied with England and being part of Britain. And also some I think it's just about sort of the institutions of power. There is no sort of strong pro-Brexit institution in Scotland. You know, there's like the Tories aren't powerful here, although as you just discussed, slightly more powerful now, but still not very. Sure. There's no UKIP. You know, there's no, there aren't, like there's no one to make the case. You know, which politician would in Scotland kind of persuade people of the case for leaving the EU? And, and there kind of isn't anyone. So I think the whole load of factors, but a combination of them certainly means that, you know, Scotland is significantly more pro-EU. And I suppose, you know, the SNP have been here making the case to stay in the EU for a very long time. And, and I suppose, sorry, it's quite a long answer, but I suppose the other thing is, on immigration, there just isn't the same salience of concern about immigration. So, yeah, sure, polls show that a good number of Scottish people, when you ask them, would would rather have less immigration. But when you ask them to list their priority of issues, no you know, immigration is a lot further down in Scotland. And again, I think that is because there is a culture in political parties of, say, of not being cowardly on this, of saying, no, we don't think the immigration is a problem, we think it's you know a whole range of other things. And the SNP and Labour and the left and everyone have all actually been quite good on that up here in a way they haven't in, in England.
3: Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So basically your MPs have been more honest and therefore people are more interested in staying in. That's fascinating. And do you think, because there's also been all this kind of rhetoric, I think, I think it's rhetoric about, you know, a Brexit could trigger another independence referendum with, with Scotland, and obviously the SNP have given a, a no referendum commitment in the manifesto, and obviously another referendum would have to be approved with Westminster. Do you think that could actually happen? Do you think if, if the UK voted for a Brexit, then Scotland would seek to leave the UK again?
10: Just want to clarify one detail, they have, the SNP haven't given a commitment not to having a referendum. Right, OK. They given a commitment to having one, if that makes sense. Um, so what they said is they'd only have a referendum if there was a change in material circumstances. Ah, okay, okay. And, and and the kind of the one which was always mentioned was if there was a Brexit referendum. Now, as you say, because I think there's two things here. The first is would the SNP want to call a referendum, to which I think the answer is basically yes. They think it would be and they think it would be a slightly difficult context to have one in. Haven't really done the work yet. Just, you know, they'd rather do it on their own timeline than sort of timeline dictated by external circumstance But I think there would be quite hard not to, because there'd be significant demand from Scottish civil society. That there was a referendum. I think you know, everyone who voted yes would say, "Come on, guys!" And that includes you know, to be honest, the staff of most NGOs. It includes a lot of senior academics and you know, leading figures in at least some of the universities. It, you know. I think in the context of leaving the EU, a lot of people who voted no last time would be pushing for a second referendum so they could stay in the EU. So I think it become very hard for the SNP not to call one. Now, as you say, though, technically Westminster has to say yes to it because it's still reserved to Westminster whether that happens. So then what happens there is kind of anyone's guess, we could easily end up in a position like Catalonia where the Scottish Government is demanding another referendum, they even maybe organise a kind of unofficial referendum and Westminster has to decide whether it's going to actually say no and try and ban Scotland from leaving, or whether it's going to say, you know, actually it's easier just to say, Fine, off you go. I don't know how they go. And I genuinely I think it's a difficult question. It could be a defining issue post Brexit if that happens.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it does, it, much like many things with this EU referendum, it's another complete unknown, I guess. We just have no idea what will happen, <laughs> depending on the results. That's really interesting. I mean, it sort of strikes me as well that that's something the government, like the Westminster government, probably wouldn't want if one union breaks up. I don't know if they'd want two on their hands in such quick succession.
10: I'm sure they wouldn't want it. I think the the, the difficult thing for them is whether it's worse to in that context to ban it and end up with sort of a more you know the one thing to, in, in Catalonia what's happened is the Spanish government have banned them from having an independence referendum and of right. course that's pushed support for independence right right up. Sure. Yeah, so whereas if it had if they let one happen right at the beginning, this, you know, the people might not have voted for independence. Now, if, they, if a referendum does finally happen, it'll almost certainly be a yes vote in Catalonia. And I suppose they might, they might have learned that lesson and realised that maybe they're better to let Scotland go than end up being seen to sort of not allow people to have their independence that they voted for or they, you know, or they want. So, I don't know, we'll see.
3: So, in conclusion, the EU is good and bad and does some good things and some bad things, and we know what will happen if we stay because we're in it now. We don't have a clue what will happen if we leave, but it may be good or bad. Unless you're a scientist, in which case it will likely be bad. Unless you're a fisherman, in which case it will likely be good. Unless you're an EU migrant wanting to work in the UK or a UK citizen wanting to work in the EU, then it'll be bad. Unless you're a xenophobe who once saw someone you didn't know in your village and it scared you, then it'll be good.
4: But tin and most importantly than anything else... What is your personal opinion?
3: Well look, I'm glad you asked, you're about 3,000. I'm going to vote, perhaps unsurprisingly after hearing all of that, uh, to remain. Though I will say on the side of Leave that I think whilst it's not as undemocratic as you'd be led to believe, as John Wirth stated, it could definitely be improved. I also think that some of the bureaucracy is completely bonkers and unnecessary and ultimately any system that is designed to aid globalization isn't something that I'm that keen on. Globalisation always sounded great to me until I realised that rather than uniting the world and bringing people together, it just means it doesn't matter where you travel to, you'll end up saying, what, there's a Starbucks here as well? With individual identities of places disappearing as the world becomes one amalgamated lump that is not in favour of normal people. But I think that is going to happen to the UK anyway, I know that's bleak and pessimistic, but with the neoliberal supporting conservatives changing boundary rules, short money cuts and electoral reforms it's just going to keep continuing. I mean, frankly, if you really believe that a leave vote, leaving us with either David Cameron or Boris Johnson or Michael Gove, is going to change any of that, then please let me know what prescription you're on because it sounds brilliant. I mean, that we're meant to believe that Johnson and Gove are now anti-elitist after years of them being very, very pro-elitist and helping people get into the House of Lords because they gave them a good donation. Or that Ian Duncan Smith is now all about social justice after deeming hundreds of people were fit for work when they weren't and causing their deaths. I mean, that is crazy. People don't just turn over a new leaf like that, especially when there's a political agenda behind it. Overall, what I'm very worried about is that this one to leave now isn't for the right reasons. The state argument isn't for the right reasons either, I should say, you know, it's it's about protecting the city or the pound rather than the environment. There's only been snippets of arguments about protecting workers' rights, for example, but the idea that we'll leave on the basis of blaming everything on EU migrants or outside forces isn't right. And I'm pretty sure if we do leave there will be a point a year or so down the line where everyone realises that things are still really shit. And what are people going to do then? Separate ourselves from the UK? Separate your county from your country? Build a wall around your town and declare a survival of the fittest battle in order to find your king? Look, very selfishly, I work in Europe loads. I do gigs in Belgium, Finland, Estonia, Netherlands, and more pretty much every year, and it has never stopped being exciting that I can just pop over there to work with a passport and no other hassle, and the audiences there are amazing. Why would I want to limit the places where I can go and make people laugh by making it less cost-effective with visas and work permits? I know comedians who live in Europe and fly back to the UK each weekend just to gig because they can, and that is incredible. These arguments based on what the campaigns have decided to make up each day are so very tedious and I worry that we're now in a world where facts come second so who can shout the loudest and who's got the most ridiculous claims. Look, I like a risk, I've got the Lord of Rings edition at home, but this risk seems like the sort of one someone makes in a teen fiction whereby one of your pals ends up dead and you for some reason have a leech in your pants. Here's political journalist Abby Wilkinson on her views on it from my interview with her in episode 30. Are you in or out for the EU? What are you going for?
8: I am in because I, I I'm in because I think the economic risk of leaving is um, you know, I, I believe it. I can see it. i'm I'm in because I do believe in the free movement of people. um and I'm also in because I like belonging to a Large organisation that's made up of lots of countries that seem to have elected more left-wing governments, than us. Like I, I don't, I, I can understand the left-wing argument for Brexit. I just don't trust that's how it would actually play out. Um, I think you know, state, being in the EU protects our employment rights. Um, yeah, I, 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 I prefer, I prefer there to be higher powers than the Tories department from anything else. <laughs>
3: So really, you should just vote for whatever you feel is best. But look, please, please do read up on facts if you're undecided, or in fact, even if you are decided. I mean, maybe focus on what you get out of a non-EU Britain or what you currently get out of us being part of the Union. And make sure you don't just base your vote on how either David Cameron or Boris Johnson feel about it, or you'll just be sick in your own shoe and not able to go out and vote at all because it's really hard to walk down the road in sicky, sicky shoes. Believe me, I've tried. If you need some facts, and here's Professor Catherine Barnard again with some recommendations on where you can get them. Do you think that the campaigns are giving people the correct information that they need to properly make a decision on whether we should stay in the European Union or not?
7: Both sides have been economical with the facts. And there are now some good organisations that are set up to fact check what's being said by both sides. And I declare an interest here because I'm involved with full fact.
3: Oh, Uh, that's great. I've used them several times myself.
7: Good. Well, that's a very good and wise choice because they are a non-partisan organisation which fact check both sides and is doing quite extensive coverage of the EU and doing some very basic explanations about what the EU is about there's also an organization called infacts which is a pro eu fact-checking service run by journalists But they are also holding up to close scrutiny what's being said by both sides so for example infacts have fact-checked boris johnson's explanation in the when he's, he wrote his piece in the telegraph explaining why he was going to vote to leave the european union And they said there are six or seven factual errors in his statement. So that just gives you a flavour of the nature of the debate. And today you'll have heard Michael Gove saying that the legal agreement which Cameron entered into last week is not legally binding. Hmm. And again, a lot of people take a different view on that. And again, if I could plug the UK and the changing Europe, which is also something that both Amy and I are involved in, which is funded by the ESRC, the Economic Science Research Council. They have a lot of information on their website, which again is is nonpartisan, trying to explain in fairly clear terms what's going on.
3: There is going to be no podcast next week because I think it's probably best uh, to now just see what happens, I guess. And either this lengthy, lengthy podcast has taken a lot of work, will be irrelevant in two weeks' time, or you'll be able to use it for the next referendum in about 30 years when you listen to it via a chip in your eye. I'm going to be part of the Simple Politics Politician Free panel in Whitstable on June the 16th, if you can be bothered to hear a lot of these views all over again. Um, if you're not near Whitstable, it's going to be streaming online at simplepolitics.co.uk. Huge thanks to all the guests who clips I've cheekily used again for today's show. Uh, huge thanks to Eurobot3000, who's going to be dismantled if it's a Brexit.
4: Oh, what a horrible way to find out about your own finite existence.
3: Sorry. And also to Mark Struthers at Energy Studios, who's done some fancy sound things to this episode to make it hear nice, uh, which is great. And yes, we've needed that for a long time. Thank you very much, Mark. As always, please spread the word about this podcast, review it on iTunes, and contact me at ParPolBro on Twitter or Facebook or at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Sure, so it may just... All it will do is stop us talking about it as much for the next maybe 20 years until another one happens.
5: Yeah, maybe. Well, until Nigel Farage kind of dusts himself down and two years ahead of time uh, starts talking about it again. Look at it in the uh, 1975 referendum, for example. It took the Labour Party only until the early 1980s before they were once again advocating withdrawal in their manifesto. So there was only a kind of a sort of a ceasefire for just over five years before the issue really cropped up once more. So... This this is an ongoing tension, an ongoing difficulty in British politics that the referendum is not about to solve.
3: Uh, that's a shame because there is a big part of me that kind of thought one of the good things about the referendum is that after it happens we won't have to talk about the referendum anymore but obviously that's not going to be the case <laughs> no, I'm,
5: afraid, I'm afraid not this is this is almost well if, if britain votes to remain it will calm things down if britain votes to go you're going to be talking about nothing else for the next 2 years in british politics
3: oh, oh dear well that's very sad news, is there, there's, there's, there's,
5: there's a good case for remain if you're bored by the european union vote remain because calm everything down <laughs>
3: See you in two weeks when either things will be the same, but angry, or different, but different angry. And now, for the very, very last time. With or without you. With or without
9: you.